Hey everyone, it's Scott Lecky here at episode 5 of Jointly Venturing. And today we're going to talk about climate change and what it's like to be a law student or a student of anything, but today we have with us two law students, so we're going to talk primarily about that. Um, what's it like to be a law student in the age of ever-worsening climate change? We're recording this um, during the second and final week of the Conference of the Parties, the COP24 in Poland, which is addressing the entire issue of climate change and trying to come to some form of agreement that will actually result in improvements rather than ever-increasing backward steps when it comes to tackling the problem of climate change. So we're very happy today to have with us Fiona Bucknell and Isabel Harding, both of whom are law students at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hey, Fiona. Hey, how's it going? Isabel. Hi. <laughs> so today, um, there's one more day to go in Poland. Uh, this is a meeting that was addressed, among others, by David Attenborough, who last week said, after many decades of saying essentially nothing on climate change, that planet Earth essentially has 10 years in order to save civilization. I mean, just let that sink in for a moment. If we don't fundamentally change what we do, how we organize ourselves, how we run our economies globally, how we use resources, within 10 years, civilization itself could in fact end in the opinion of David Attenborough and, and increasingly other people as well. Now we've worked ourselves very extensively on this whole issue of climate change in many different countries around the world. Um, and we've seen it firsthand. Um, whether in the Arctic, whether in the small islands of the Pacific, whether in Bangladesh, and so many other places, and can tell you beyond any doubt that climate change is real, climate change is worsening, and ever-growing numbers of people are affected in negative ways by the consequences of climate change. One of the recent statistics to come out at the meeting in Poland was that Ice melt rates in Greenland have never been higher than they are now, and they're approximately 50% faster than were previously predicted. If all of Greenland were to melt, sea levels would rise by more than 7 meters globally. So if you're anywhere near a coastline, just imagine what would happen to that coastline if sea levels were 7 meters higher than they are today. If all of the ice on planet Earth was to melt, the Arctic was to melt, Greenland, Antarctica, all the glaciers, so on and so forth, sea levels will rise more than 50 meters. This is just a staggering thing to ponder. And as impossible as it may seem to, to be, increasingly people are seeing this as a likely rather than unlikely scenario uh, in the coming century. So we're talking about literally hundreds of millions of people who will be negatively affected, if not, in fact, even more. Ultimately, in one way or another, every human being will be affected if current trends continue. Uh, the objective was always to keep CO2 levels less than 350 parts per million. We're now well over 400. 
The aim of Paris and other meetings was to keep climate increases down over historical levels to 1.5 degrees Celsius or less. We're already in danger zones in that regard with many predictions pointing to the increases being more like three, four, or five degrees by the end of the 21st century. So we're in a really dangerous situation right now. And we thought it would be interesting today during the time that the meeting is being held in Poland to discuss with Isabel and Fiona what it's like to be a young person in their early 20s in law school taking courses on climate change um, and how do they deal with the fact that they're living in a world where this is such a, a looming threat and also you know what they think can be done about it um, where where do you where do they think we should go um, you know they have hopefully 80 80 or 90 or more years ahead of them um, and if the predictions that the world are showing us um, come true when it comes to climate change, the world's going to look very different um, as they, you know, work in their careers and move on in life. So what about you, um, Fiona? We'll start with you. Um, what are your thoughts about being in your early 20s, being a law student, living in Australia, one of the countries which is not really taking a very progressive stance on um on climate change. What do, you, what do you think about that? Uh, well, firstly, on a personal level, it's obviously um, very scary. It's a quiet fear. It's an ebbing fear. It's not something that you need to think about every day, living in you know, a nice part of Australia. Um, but it's something that you're const that's constantly on your mind. Climate change is going to change the way we live, the way we work, whether or not you know we decide to have children and what kind of world we might be leaving for future generations. And then also what kind of world will be experiencing when we're in our 70s, 80s, that sort of thing. Um, in terms of being a young law student, um, it's actually quite fertile and interesting that there is a lack of um, consideration and legal frameworks um, and any precedence on how climate change and the issues resulting from climate change might be litigated in the future. So it is a scary time, but at the same time, um, it's the right time to be thinking about these issues and trying to tackle what we can to prevent um, as much as we can. And how does it make you feel of, you know, I'm, I'm about 30 years older than you guys. Um, so I have the you know, benefit of all those decades of living through incredible global prosperity, etc. But how does it make you feel, um, Isabel, that we're not actually blaming Mother Earth or mother nature for the effects of climate change, even though that's how the problems are manifested, but actually the type of economic system that we as a collective of seven and a half billion humans have chosen to pursue for the last century or, well, really since the industrial age, you know, 150, 180 years. Um, how does that make you feel? Yeah, it's very confronting to realize that the prosperity that we perceive ourselves to be living in is also what is destroying our future um, and our family's future livelihood. Um, because there's no doubt that our world runs in a particular way and that's based on consumerism and it's hard to see ourselves uh, coming away from that, yet I don't know what we can like do to otherwise... Um, 
resurrect our planet if we don't change our habits. Um, and I think you talk to young people and they have this concern, this kind of background concern of what the future is going to look like. But at the same time, we're pretty hesitant to change our daily actions. And then at the end of the day, it's not really our daily actions that matter. It's probably those of corporations and um, governments. But at the same time, they're going to keep blaming us for having these lifestyles that they enable because we want them to. So it's just a very depressing circle of life that we are in at the moment. And I don't, and I'm very scared about how we're going to tackle that. Although there is the upside, which is the fact that millennials and people our age are actually consuming less. I mean, you hear in the news all the time, millennials have killed the diamond wedding ring industry and millennials are killing all these industries, these hyper-consumerist in industries. Um, and this is actually showing a trend that millennials and younger people are actually being a little bit more conscious for their consuming, um, which could possibly um, help us go away from this kind of hyper-consumerist ultra-capitalist kind of path that the world has been on for quite a while. That makes me excited. I didn't know we were killing the diamond industry. <laughs> yeah, we're also killing the divorce industry as well, apparently. Divorce lawyers are doing really badly because millennials are only getting married you know, oh. to people that they're quite sure of yeah. and getting married a lot less. Yeah, right. There you go. Well, it's interesting. I think it is such a generational thing, this conversation, because I remember a few weeks ago having a very, very disheartening chat with my grandfather who is an avid conservative and avid reader of the Australian and he is very convinced and I was telling him he was asking about my subjects at uni and I was telling him I'm doing this research paper about climate displacement and he's like, oh well that's all very interesting and oh well, you know it's so funny with things you hear these days about people talking about the environment it's all so alarmist and outrageous and I'm like oh but is it really I think there's a reality ahead of us that we're trying to face up to and he genuinely thinks that there is not a man-made climate change thing going on and I couldn't believe it from my smart well-educated grandfather um that that was a view that he holds so I am very heartened like Fiona said by my generation and where we're headed in that perspective at least yeah, well, you guys need to take power sooner than later because there's still so many people in power in countries around the world, you know, particularly the biggest emitters who are essentially doubters, not just doubters and skeptics, but, you know, outright deniers who simply say this is just a normal weather pattern. They, they, they mistakenly uh, interpret climate change as the weather, even though those things are entirely different phenomena, um, and just simply will not accept that human interventions into the natural environment are actually the cause of the effects of climate change. And obviously there are so many vested interests involved in having views like that, most notoriously having direct links to the coal industry or the fossil fuel industry more broadly, um, or even just to larger political considerations. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, we have climate change because of the economic system that we have chosen to have guide our planet for the last 200 years or so. And whether it was left wing or right wing or industrialist or digital, it has in one way or another had a negative impact upon the ability of the planet itself to regulate itself in a way that didn't fundamentally alter the climate.
and you know to skeptics who say but the weather has always changed and the climate has always changed and we've lived and you know there have been ice ages throughout the eons of history etc you know that's all true but none of this has ever happened on a planet where there's seven and a half billion people living soon to be nine billion you know a, a, a species that also because of its own choices um, has created conditions where we have at least 100 to 200 extinctions every single day. I mean, this is just a staggering number. And, you know, it really makes me wonder, you know, what is it truly going to take for the entire species that, of which we are all a part to really stand back and say, if we want our species to continue for 100 or 1,000 or 100,000 years, What's it really going to take before we make the decisions we need to make in order to make that possible? I mean, it's it's as if the entire species of human is on its proverbial deathbed and it looks back at its history over the past three, four hundred generations of human lives. Around a hundred billion people have lived on human Earth, human, human uh, on, on planet Earth, by the way. So all those hundred billion lives lived was it worth it to make these choices to have the lifestyle that we eventually got used to if it meant the premature demise you know of our species and obviously the answer to, to that question for us is no it's not worth it and how do we move forward i mean that's really the biggest question of all and we can do a lot at the individual level of course you know, we can choose not to procreate, we can choose not to eat meat, we can choose to fly never or less, drive never or less, plant trees, and so on and so forth. There's countless measures we can do, live in smaller homes, etc. Um, but will the entire human race do this? And the answer at this stage does not really look very likely. Added to the fact that, you know, once you've lived a life of, of affluence um, in the wealthy West, particularly in a country such as Australia, which is right now the world's wealthiest country, um, it's easy for us to say, okay, yeah, it's not that great to have all these material things. We can we can go backwards a little, little bit. We're willing to sacrifice a bit. But what about the two-thirds of humanity that are living on less than, you know, $10 a day, who, who want to have all the things that the West has had at its disposal forever, and growing numbers of people in China and India also have at their disposal now. What's who could possibly ethically say that big chunks of humanity are never able to experience that, and no one can. Um, and yet, if we don't, um, you know, we have even greater problems um, to grapple with. So, you know, with large corporations having increasing amounts of power, with fewer and fewer corporations having increasing levels of power with the wealthy billionaire class having growing levels of power, both politically and economically, and the world reaching levels of inequality that it probably has never seen before, um, you know, things do not look that rosy. And yet, we all know, if we want to, what the facts are. We can see it all around us. We can read books, we can see films, etc. We can go to the places. It's all there for everyone to see. But really what it's going to take, in my opinion, is not just the individual choices of seven and a half billion people, but people who are really involved at the highest level within the industries that are the worst polluters 
to consciously make the decision that they're no longer going to work there. So oil refinery employees, you know, executives in coal industries, um, political parties that currently support these types of sectors, you know, times, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people making that very hard choice to say, I'm no longer going to be structurally part of the problem. I choose something better, you know, and that's always hard to do. But when it does happen, you know, it's one of the most moving things you ever see when people do consciously make, you know, decisions of that nature. So, you know, people are doing things around the world in many different ways to tackle the consequences of climate change. And, um, you know, New Zealand, for instance, has a number of interesting cases that have come before the courts um, brought by direct victims of climate change. And what do you think about that as a possible way of improving the situation? Yeah, it's very interesting to observe what's been happening in New Zealand's legal system over the past decade or so. So, yeah, we've been talking about the doom and gloom of um, climate change and people in the Pacific are feeling it firsthand now. And um, so a few cases from Kiribati and um, Tuvalu um, have been, have come before. Initially, the Refugee Review Tribunals of New Zealand and... Um, Look, the, the the first outcomes haven't been that promising. The the kind of view of the, I think they're called the registrars in that tribunal, have been that, look, it's an unfortunate situation going on in your country, but because it affects everyone, it's not something that can be deemed a refugee issue. You're not being persecuted. It's just a consequence of where you live that's not unique to you. Um so that, that's been an initial uh, judgment, which um, is not super helpful for the people of countries that are soon to go under. But it's happening to all of you. It doesn't matter. Great. Good. Um, anyway, so a couple of those cases have uh, been appealed and been taken um, through the court system in New Zealand. And um, two cases came before the High Court where some consideration and value was put on the fact that um, these individuals uh, no longer have a safe or viable place to live in their home island because it is soon to be underwater. So uh, it, it's the, the media around these cases um, did initially report, uh, this is New Zealand recognising refugees of climate change. Unfortunately, that wasn't quite the case. Uh, the judgments that were eventually made that um, saw uh, one man from... I think it was the Kiribati case. I hope I'm not wrong there. Um, he was allowed to stay with his family in New Zealand. Um, and the man from Tuvalu was rejected. However, um, the High Court made comment about the refugee um, convention in place at the moment and how it is not effective, it's not going to account properly for the inevitable future of the Pacific Islanders of their home being underwater. It is not um, going to be comprehensive enough to deal with um, their situation. So it was really interesting to note in doing some research around this area that um, New Zealand has re uh, recognised this as an issue that needs to be dealt with by international treaties. 
um, and it's not something that has come up at all in Australia, I believe. Um, and the follow-on effect from those cases was the general public of New Zealand, um, there seems to be widespread agreement that they want to be able to assist, that they have an obligation to assist. And um, Jacinda Ardern, the current PM, has made note of uh, making a special visa program uh, based on um, climate displacement in the Pacific, which is a really pleasing um, progress. And yeah, there's there's been shown some concern and some consideration for some future solutions in that country. Yeah, right. And when you compare it to, even though we're, we're so similar to uh, New Zealand in so many ways on this issue in particular, and, and increasingly many others, um, they are light years ahead of mm. where Australia is. And do you want to talk a little bit about like, you know, we, we are, are living in a country where the national government, the federal government is seen to be far, far closer to the United States under Trump than it is to its most immediate neighbor, New Zealand, when it comes to the climate change issues. So what do you think about that? Um, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of crazy to see how far Australia's refugee policy in particular has actually diverged from that of New Zealand. Um, and this is not just in terms of climate change, but in terms of the Refugee Convention, which of course is inadequate for climate change refugees in any case. The implementation of that convention has been severely lacking and the Australian government has taken steps away from it. Um, and when I was doing my research on Australia, it mostly surrounded um, whether or not international law is even applicable in Australia in any case. And Australian high courts have uh, suggested and decided that it is not. Um, Australia, the Australian government can absolutely exclude international treaties um, when it comes to our own domestic legislation. Um, and what that means is that it's very, very hard for any refugee claim to be accepted in Australia, um, let alone one for climate uh, refugees. And the ex-Foreign Minister Julie Bishop actually did um, discuss this issue. Um, the Australian government has considered the issue of climate change refugees, but they've decided that migration is the absolute lowest priority, that they will um, stop any channels for migration apart from a few um, labour migration schemes. And their priority is actually trying to fix those problems in the country of origin, such as Tuvalu and Kiribati. And it's very interesting because the Australian government is sending a lot of foreign aid to these countries where it would actually be a lot cheaper and a lot more effective if they were to allow migration. But of course, that also depends on Pacific Islanders and whether or not they are willing to move away from their nations. Right, right. And, you know, often... Um... Australia, when it comes to questions of migration or immigration or refugees, um, you know, tends to make a mountain out of molehill in many respects when it comes to the numbers of people affected. You know, I mean, let's compare it to the situation facing the government of Bangladesh or India right now. Um, you know, 30 to 40 million people in Bangladesh are going to be displaced by climate change. You know, that's more than the entire population of Australia, right? Um, and they have policies on these questions and they have programs underway and they are t attempting to, you know, grapple with this question as much as they can, you know, domestically, etc. Um, unfortunately, India in response and out of fear that there's going to be a mass exodus of Bangladeshis into India because of climate change is now building a wall between uh, those two countries at the border um, and it's becoming increasingly impermeable, um, that border. So that raises the entire question of 
what are we going to do? Now we already have far too many refugees and internally displaced people in the world. We have 65 million uh, that UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, um, has responsibility for. You know, what are we going to do in a world when the numbers become 100 million or 200 million or 500 million people who need a new place to go when at present there are effectively zero international institutions entrusted with looking after these people? There's zero uh, international budgets available to assist these people on a large scale with some very notable and but very small exceptions. So we have a um, gigantic challenge in front of us. And when you look at it globally, the problems that Australia is facing in this regard are minuscule. And, you know, particularly in a country which very happily and very, you know, favorably and positively takes in 150 to 250,000 immigrants a year without anyone even questioning it, really, from the left or right. I mean, there's a small discussion underway now about whether we should reduce immigration numbers for the first time. But still, the numbers are very high. And, and most people, most places here see immigration as an entirely positive thing in economic terms and cultural terms in all sorts of ways. Um, and yet when it comes to people coming in as unauthorized refugees, everything changes. And because that change takes place at the highest political level, um, somehow they've been able to warehouse people on distant islands in tremendously uh, inadequate conditions that have been condemned by doctors and NGOs and so many others repeatedly. So what's going to happen when, when you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people from the Pacific start attempting to move to places that are safe? You know, I, I'm pretty confident that New Zealand will take in a lot of these um, people, but it would certainly be beneficial if Australia at the very least had a policy on this question. There's not even a policy now by the federal government on the broader question of climate displacement, despite Australia being one of the main contributors to CO2 on a per capita basis. You know, yes, we're only a country of 25 million, but when it comes to every individual's amount of CO2 emissions, it's, it's really large. State of Victoria is one of the worst emitters of any political jurisdiction in the world, in fact, when it comes to per capita CO2 emissions. So, you know, we're very much part of the problem and we're, Australia is very much siding with, at least this current government is siding with the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, it would seem advantageous to have a policy in place that actually recognized the phenomenon of climate displacement, that we have a useful role to play in helping to prevent it and resolve it, and that we should work together with New Zealand and figure out how to do this in a structural way that protects the rights of everybody in the Pacific to stay as long as they can where they are, if that's what their wish is, or to facilitate you know, rights-based solutions. Uh, whether they're in small island nations, such as Tuvalu, with only 10 or 11,000 people, or larger countries, which are still small, Solomon Islands, 500,000, Fiji, less than a million, nonetheless all you know heavily affected by climate change and climate displacement as well um so there's still a real long ways to go and uh we're really nowhere near uh seeing very much light you know at the end of the tunnel and so just back to the broader question of of you know growing up and coming of age ultimately in the the historical epoch that is climate change you know for both of you 
um, Fiona and Isabel. Um, you know, both of you have, in, in a way, just as everyone else who's your age, you've benefited from an economic system that has essentially released lots of CO2 into the environment. Um, you know, the cars that you drive in, the houses you were raised in, um, you know, the type of food that was grown near you that you eventually consumed, so on and so forth. They're all linked and everything is ultimately interconnected with everything else, of course. And that's particularly evident when it comes to climate change. And that really is one of the great challenges, I think, that confronts all of us, that every single one of us does something every day that contributes to the problem, you know? And that's really like a collective psychological guilt, almost, that we need to come to terms with and we need to recognize, you know, we can't simply put it on, uh, you know, oil companies and coal factories. Um, we all benefit from those things and we use those products and we can try to use them less and so on and so forth. But what's really needed is the transformation of our largely capitalistic economic system into, which is entirely based on the, the creating desires to consume, um, into what's called a regenerative economic system, whereby nothing is ever wasted. It's all existing in one circular route, um, which is infinitely cleaner, infinitely more sustainable, and can still allow people to have very comfortable um, and productive and prosper prosperous um, lives. But, you know, getting there is going to be the challenge. So, you know, just to conclude with both of you, if you can just give a few thoughts on, um, you know, what career paths you might pursue, you know, in the era of climate change. Does climate change affect um, decisions that you're making now about where you might want to work down the, down the road? Um, and, you know, what you, what you kind of expect from the next 10, 20, 30 years of life in, in your working life and how climate change might affect that. Do you have any thoughts of that? Well, Isabel? some very big questions there. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that there's a sense of optimism we can take forward. Um, I think our generation and people our age are aware of um, the impending dangers of our lifestyle and um, of corporations and, and our missions. And I think that there's a lot of innovation that can take place to facilitate a, a sustainable lifestyle into the future. And I'm not the smart science person who's going to make those things up, but we were talking earlier about all these kind of AI um, technological breakthroughs. And I just think there must be a way that if we invest it and we try hard enough that we can find technology to to make our lifestyles um, much more sustainable. Um, and I, I'm personally particularly disappointed in our political um, class um, at the moment that they have not been leading on this issue. And um, I think they've enabled a lot of apathy and enabled a lot of inaction on this. So um, going forward, um, Scott's made some compelling points to us about opening a climate change law firm and to say it's a pretty exciting thought as there there's, could be so much um, in that. Um, I personally think I need to gain some basic lawyering skills to get me there first and I hope to do that in a public interest capacity um, working for the good of my community in some way. 
Um, and yeah, like I said, I'm, I am I am pretty disappointed in politicians of my um, of the last few years, and um, I, I'm interested in politics into the future. And essentially, they they ultimately make the decisions that um, see our communities run the way they are. And um, I I would like to help ensure that much better leadership takes place. Um, in the future, so maybe some work down that way as well. Um, but yeah, it is it is all very overwhelming, and I think. And my last point that I would make is that I think it's heartbreaking that the the lifestyle of us affluent people in the West is impacting the most vulnerable people in the world first. And I think that's a great injustice that we need to reflect on, and particularly why we need to contribute to solutions and. Um, those of displacement and immigration and refugees as well. So, yeah, a lot Absolutely. of big stuff. Mm. Yeah, obviously I share, uh, share very similar uh, sentiments to Isabel in terms of the, um, I, I suppose, resentment towards our current political system, but I think that the tide is potentially changing. Even looking at it from a capitalist perspective, for example, renewable energy is increasingly getting more cheap, uh, cheaper and more efficient actually in comparison to fossil fuels. The only problem is that it may already be too late as we've already had our discussions on. Um, So right now the most important thing as perhaps a young law student and maybe a young lawyer is dealing with the new um, complications and problems that are going to arise as the result of climate change. Um, Personally I would really like to work um, in terms of international human rights, um, that's the kind of law field that I would like to go into. And it will be very interesting to see whether or not there are new rights afforded to people displaced by climate change because refugee status is um, not adequate at all for people displaced by climate change. Often refugees, for example, go back to their country of origin after the war's over. That's not going to be the case when it comes to climate change refugees. So it's actually a permanent long-term solution that's going to affect everyone. And as Isabel said, it's going to affect us wealthy people in the West last. So we have a collective responsibility to deal with these issues. Um, And as soon as possible, we really need to be doing this now, today, yesterday. Um, So I'm excited for the future, but obviously also apprehensive as to the large responsibility that's on all of our shoulders. Right. Well, that's that's really interesting. Both of your contributions here, and and just to end on a, also on a slightly positive note, and you know we're talking about a problem here that's ultimately totally global in nature and is going to affect hundreds of millions of people. Um, you know, work that we've carried out um, through my other organization, Displacement Solutions, we've done work looking into the question of how much land would actually be required globally to provide every displaced family with a new piece of land to start life over on if they were not able to live where they're living now because of the effects of climate change. And we've found that it's less than 1%. It's well under 1% of the world's land surface is required in order to provide a physical concrete piece of land to every single family. That is doable. That's within our reach. In fact, the number is well under 1%. It's 0.14% of the world's land surface. It's roughly the size of Costa Rica or uh, Tasmania, essentially, would be enough land to provide every single household with a new new start in life. So it's not that we don't have the, that particular resource available. We do. 
Um, and we need to focus on that. And we need to get governments to start setting land aside for these people, setting up national climate land banks as a tool to actually concretely repair and prevent, to the maximum possible extent, displacement caused by climate change. So that's, you know, that's one positive reaction uh, in terms of a policy or a law that can be implemented by every country in the world to begin the process of, you know, really addressing this displacement dimensions of climate change. But over and above that, you know, all of us, whoever is listening to this podcast today and into the future, uh, we all need to recognize our own personal role in this process. And in realizing that all of us are contributing in a way to the problem, it also means all of us can contribute uh, to the solution. And thinking more deeply about the whole question of climate change and realizing that it is truly global in nature, that only truly global and internationalist solutions will help to end the scourge of climate change and begin the process of regenerating nature at a global level. Uh, it's only through those global processes that we can do this. So maybe it also means that we can, instead of seeing climate change exclusively as a problem, as something to be fearful of, we can use this common threat as a way to create greater unity amongst people, realizing that we're all truly in this together. We're probably more in this together in terms of climate change than just about anything else. So let's promote more interaction between people. Let's promote more understanding between people uh, from every single corner of the earth and use this in a way as a stepping stone towards that greater objective of imagining a world where there are no borders, where there are, is no need for borders, where all of our citizenship is the same, where from the day that we're born, just as we get a national birth certificate now in virtually every corner of the planet, even the poorest corners of the planet, we also get a world citizenship status, something that would become so normal and so standard after two or three generations, and something that would bind all of us together into one single polity based on our shared humanity, based on those incredible trillions of numbers of similarities that all of us have in our lives, and no longer based on the very, very small number of differences that we use to organize ourselves now with politically. So we can use climate change, the threat of it, and the horrible consequences of it as a vehicle by which we can truly think of how to reorder the planet in a way that will not only promote greater unity amongst people everywhere, but will be a pathway to achieving things that we could not otherwise achieve politically without it being there. So let's just all of us think, what, what is the role that I can play as an individual? And I mean I in the collective sense, the collective I. What's the role that every single one of us can play to bring about the changes needed to build the planet that we all know is possible? One that's far more evolved than the planet is today in terms of the politics that we allow to guide us that brings about a future where the human race's future existence is guaranteed for thousands if not hundreds of thousands of years instead of thinking in terrifying terms of civilization ending in the next 10 20 30 40 years 
So let's try to use th these negative forces in a positive way. Continue to strive to build a planet which is far more advanced than the one we're living on now, and one which brings peace and prosperity to everybody everywhere. So thanks again, Isabel and uh, Fiona, for the discussion today. It was super interesting. And with that, we'll leave you to the music of the inimitable Peter Martin, and we'll see you next week in episode six. See you, everybody. Bye.